I have called up in all my years of sorcery, no ominous and gibbous. And the Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith. I'm Tim. I'm Phil. And I'm Ruth. And this week, we have a special guest, Mike Bukowski, and we'll also be covering The Testament of Athemaeus. Hi, that's me. Well, not Athemaeus, Mike Bukowski. <laughs> Man, why couldn't we get Athemaeus on uh, this That's podcast? why I didn't do a video chat. <laughs> I look disgusting. <laughs> so, Mike, why don't you tell us who you are and why you're awesome? That's what it says in our notes. <laughs> I am glad that you guys think that. <laughs> um, I do a, I'm an illustrator from Philadelphia, and I do a blog called Yog Blogsoft, where I'm illustrating all the creatures that Lovecraft ever wrote about, and there's a lot of Clark Ashton Smith crossover in there. So You guys should check out his site, yog-blogsoth.blogspot.com, so we'll link it in the show notes, and it's just, it's fantastic. I own two yeah. of the books he's put out, and they're just beautiful. There's actually two pieces that I revise after listening to your podcast. Which really? were? Yeah, there's uh, two pieces from the Lovecraft's commonplace book where he talks about gargoyles and oh, right. I redid them so that they were gargoyles from the maker of gargoyles. Oh, that's, that's excellent. Yeah, Very yeah I've cool. seen those. They're, they're fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. They're really cool. Uh, yeah. It was, it was very cool seeing them brought to life. Yeah. I was looking at them earlier and it was cool actually seeing an illustrative representation of them. I should also point out that Maybe if you're at work, you shouldn't look at my blog. <laughs> yeah. I was going to maybe suggest that as there well. There might be penises. There, there might be a lot of them. In fact, yeah, yeah but it's like demon penises. It is so. like demon Does penises. that really count? Well, it depends wondering, on your employer. I'm wondering, yeah. on the topic of demon penises, what inspired you to give the devil two penises? <laughs> um... I don't know. It's just trying Because to... I love it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love it. I'm just wondering if there was a, a particular moment when you were drawing it and when you were like, you know what? One is not good enough. <laughs> I was just trying to make him gross. And yeah. I guess like most of the like, a lot of the pagan deities that, you know, the Christian faith turned into demons and devils mm -hmm. later on were fertility gods. So they were always depicted with penises, usually erect. Right. So that kind of translated over. And in all the drawings of, like, the medieval drawings of the devil, he usually has a penis, mm -hmm. like, prominent. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. There's a lot I of think it's there's awesome. a lot of boobs and penises on the, on the that block. That too. <laughs> I, I noticed, though, that the satyrs wasn't especially large. for You know, for a satyr, I mean, I'm not talking maybe in a human sense, but um, the, the satyr gargoyle, I looked at that and thought, huh. I think there is, I actually did do a uh, satyr from oh, the horror. A regular satyr? Yeah, and I think I gave him a similar one. This is really weird. Okay, yeah, it's just, um... <laughs> no, but I mean, I think if, I, wow. if you look at, like, the Greek, the Greek yeah. like, vases, they always have, like, really small ones, I guess. They do. Mm -hmm. They do. 
Um, you have been listening to the double penis. The <laughs> penis. Podcast. Wait, hold on, hold on. I have, I have a non-penis related question. Okay. Oh, yeah. uh, how did you get into this project? Like, what's your history with Lovecraft and with weird fiction in, in general? Like, what is your? Uh, give us a little biography as to how you started this project. As an illustrator, mostly I do work for bands, like uh, mm-hmm. record covers for punk bands and metal bands and stuff like that. And then this is just a personal thing that I did because. Um, I think I was reading the horror in the museum because I guess I should go back and just say that I've always loved Lovecraft and uh, Robert E. Howard. Mm-hmm. And when uh, there was a time kind of recently, like within the last like six years that I was reading the horror in the museum and I was reading the description of Ron Tegoff and I was just like, what does that look like? Even though I was mm-hmm. reading the description, it's like, I can't imagine that. So I did a Google image search and found almost nothing. Yeah. And there were a bunch of other creatures in there that I, I think the Nafke was another one. And I was like, I, right. I can't imagine what these look like. And I couldn't find any images, so I decided to draw them myself based on mm-hmm. the descriptions. And then uh, I was asked to do a show in Philadelphia of those drawings. And then it just kind of spiraled out of control from there. And wow, now I'm like delving into his poetry. <laughs> that's fantastic it's, yeah. it's a dark place as poetry both <laughs> oh, thematically God. and uh skill wise I, yeah. I don't know I if mean, you've ever if you've ever read any robert e howard's poetry but i have I yeah wish, <laughs> i love robert e howard's poetry yeah me I know too it's, it's awesome oh, it's not the same <laughs> <laughs> when you plan on illustrating a certain creature do you look at well there's the ones like the Nopke, which is hardly ever covered, but something like Cthulhu, do you look at what other illustrators have done and intentionally go in a different direction, or do you just try to, you know, imagine it as you would do it? Um, a little bit of both. Like, for Cthulhu, that it's kind of hard not to. Yeah. Like, you don't... It's like Frankenstein. Like, you... Mm-hmm. you do, like, everybody has expectations of what he's supposed to look right. like. So... It, it's like hard to just completely go out of control, especially because he does give a pretty good description of him. Um, right. I do remember when uh, I think Boing Boing and like uh, a couple other places like uh, reposted my blog uh, like two years ago, and a bunch of people saw my, a lot of the work, and I got tons of complaints about how lazy Cthulhu looked in my drawing. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure, like, I don't have it in front of me right now, but I'm pretty sure the quote is, uh, Lovecraft actually describes him as, like, kind of, like, gross yeah, like, and, like... Yeah, like, fat and, uh, pulpy. Yeah, like, not, like, yeah. this buff... Like, I always see drawings of him as a buff, like, right, like guy. a superhero. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Boris Vallejo drawing with a tentacle head, <laughs> right. and that's like, that's not what it is. Gross. <laughs> and I really like that you stuck to the rudimentary wings uh-huh. thing. <laughs> like, you totally embraced it. I love that he's got those tiny little wings. Yeah. <laughs> Useless. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, awesome. I think it's a very... Speaking as a Cthulhu chick, which I think should give me, like, right. plus something to authority, I, I would say it's quite a good quite a good representation thereof. Thanks. And, and uh, I, actually, my Sathagwa is probably oh, yeah. a little different than Clark Ashton Smith's description because I also incorporated Lovecraft's description yeah, right. from mm-hmm. the horror in the museum. Yeah, that one's a very cool image, too. It is, yeah. 
he's a little more dynamic than the Sathagwa we've been talking about on the show. I love, I think there's like a, I think it's a, there's a guidebook to creatures of the Kadath or something. Uh-huh. And there's like a drawing of Sathagwa, like sitting on a chair, like using a bone as a toothpick. Nice. And that's, <laughs> that's, awesome. that's what I always imagine is the Clark Ashton Smith version, where it's right. just like kind of a cartoon character, like, hey guys, yeah. what's up? <laughs> <laughs> So should we move into the story, or do we have to talk about how, speaking of Thagwa, our contest is over, or we're just not mentioning the contest? What are we doing, Tim? Our contest is over, and we've informed the winner in the future, (laughs) then when we're recording this podcast, but because it's in the future, all we can say is that we've informed the winner and not who the winner is. But check out our blog. We'll We'll do a special blog post on them that will go up before the episode, so check it out last week. Oh God, the time paradoxes. <laughs> so congratulations, your name here. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna start the story. Uh, so the Testament of Athemaeus was originally published in Weird Tales in October 1932, uh, and it was alongside um, Frankenstein was still being serialized in Weird Tales at the time, uh, and there were stories by Seabury Quinn, Jack Williamson, and others, and then a poem by a woman named Alice Janssen called Kishi My Cat, which I point out specifically <laughs> because I thought it was such a weird thing. And then I, if you Google her name, and yeah. not necessarily that poem, but apparently Robert E. Howard, speaking of Robert E. Howard and poetry, loved her poetry um, and like wrote letters to Weird Tales asking about her. Um, and not much is really known. The the one website that I, that I found mention of her on didn't really know much about her, except that she was like an American living in Mexico and... She died, I think, in 1932 or 1933. So, wow. anyway, here's to you, Alice Anson, one of the many mysteries of the past of Weird Tales. Yeah. And I have no idea. I couldn't find the text of Kishi, my cat. I didn't look that hard, but I would be I would be curious to know <laughs> what it's all about. I have a note to add on this. You know, we were talking about uh, Frankenstein was in the last episode, too, in the thing. The movie, the famous Universal picture Frankenstein, came out in 1931, which would be a year before, the year before this. And so they were probably rerunning it after the success of the right. film. And that I know because I was just going through my shadows of a Filmland book uh, before the episode and happened to notice that. It has become needful for me, who am no wielder of the stylus of bronze or the pen of calamus, and whose only proper tool is the long, double-handed sword to indict this account of the curious and lamentable happenings which foreran the universal desertion of Camorium by its king and its people. This I am well fitted to do, for I played a signal part in these happenings, and I left the city only when the others had gone. Now Camorium, as everyone knows, was aforetime the resplendent, high-built capital and the marble and granite crown of all Hyperborea. But concerning the cause of its abandonment, there are now so many warring legends and so many tales of a false and fabulous character that I, who am old in years and triply old in horrors, I, who have grown weary with no less than eleven lustrums of public service, am compelled to write this record of the truth ere it fade utterly from the tongues and memories of men. And this I do, though the telling thereof will include a confession of my one defeat, my one failure in the dutiful administration of a committed task. For those who will read the narrative in future years, and haply in future lands, I shall now introduce myself. I am Athamaeus, the chief headsman of Zul'Darum, who held formerly the same office in Camorium. My father, Mankai Thal, was a headsman before me, and the sires of my father, even to the mythic generations of the primal kings, have wielded the great copper sword of justice on the block of Iconwood. 
so that's cool. Triply, <laughs> triply old in horrors is awesome. <laughs> that's so good. Um, so what's what is um what's eleven lustrums? Fifty five years. How old do you think he? Oh, so he's. 55 now. He's not. Well, no, he's done 11 lustres of public service. So if we say he started when he was at the least 15, he would be 70. If he started when he was 20, he'd be 75. If he started later because his father hadn't yet died or retired, he'd be even older. Yeah. Yeah. So he's been chopping necks for 55 years. (laughs) I love the term headsman. I think it's an awesome, (laughs) an awesome way to refer to an executioner. (laughs) Is there supposed to be like a real life basis for where we are in this story. What do you mean, like... Like, like uh, is Hyperborea supposed to be, like, based on... Is Hyperborea the real one, or is Hyborea the real one? Uh, Hyperborea is the real one, but yeah. there's the question of, did it actually... Like, is it supposed to be set in that landmass? Yeah, I think it's supposed to be set there, but in the Greek conception of it, which isn't exactly what we have, so... Okay. One gets the feeling that he just took the idea and ran with it. Like, it's like, yeah, this ancient land that the Greeks thought about, so I'm going to make it be this way. Because I was actually did a bunch of research about executioners after I read this, re- uh-huh. after I reread this, and I was reading about the uh, executioners in the Ottoman Empire, and apparently a lot of the stuff in this story is very similar to how executioners uh-huh. were treated in that. Yeah, in, in, in the Ottoman. sense that he's kind of like a celebrity? Uh, they were, yeah, they were, I believe they, like, actually... They got wealth and money, but people didn't really like them much. Right. <laughs> so, I can't imagine why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I think that that totally makes sense as a place for him to base it on. You have to have some sort of culture where you've got that. Yeah, and that I think there's beheading and everything. Jumping ahead a bit, there's a line that was like, he was left in an unmarked, and un- ar- unmarked and unmounted grave between two middens, and that is actually how they buried their executioners. Oh, wow. Weird. Huh. Well, this, it's weird. This, That's the, cool. The name of his, uh, uh, Athamaeus' father is strangely, um, not. I mean, not Ottoman, but strangely almost Chinese or Asian sounding. Right, yeah. yeah. Which is weird, too. I mean, not necessarily to your point, but just to the, like, it's a weird mm-hmm. mix of cultural... And Athamaeus, yeah. like Athamaeus and Manghai don't sound similar, you know? <laughs> and I believe they also, the Ottomans also, it was like a family job, the same as right. he's mentioning here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did we know before this story that Camorium was the capital of Hyperborea? Or is this <laughs> the first time we're hearing well, that? Well, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't Satambra Zero still they talk about how like great and awesome it used to be? Yeah, they talk about how great and awesome it used to be and how there was a lot of stuff there, but I think this may be the first time we've heard that it was actually a capital place. Yeah. And in Satampra, they mention, because uh, uh, Athamaeus mentions in this first reading how uh, there's all of these warring legends about why Camorium has been abandoned, and mm-hmm. this is the true one. And in Satampra Zeros, he ran through a few of the the legends that it was a plague or... Yeah, does he, does he, is, there, is there a mention of something that is similar to what actually happened in Satan Zeros? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so either. Um, so what, what's the actual plot of the story? We should get into, like, what's actually going on here. What's the issue, right? Well, bandits. Bandits, yeah. <laughs> bandits. <laughs> it's always the bandits. <laughs> See, most of them are just level one, but then you've got this one guy. Sorry. I was thinking about <laughs> you're D and Ding it. I, you know, I I've been reading RPGs a lot last this last <laughs> week, and I played four games on Saturday. So yeah, 
You've got <laughs> you got all these low level bandits and they're you know, they're members of tribes called the Vormis. And they're thought to be more beasts than men, and they just live in caves like animals, and they kick the animals out, eat them, and take the caves. But then there's this one guy, and uh, he's more like a level... Well, given what <laughs> happens in the story, I don't know if we can give him a level necessarily. Exactly, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Yeah. But um, he's much, he's got a much higher AC, man. Uh, and what, uh, what's his name? Nagathan Zom. We can just call him KZ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he's the bandit leader of these Vormis, who are like beast men. But I like in the story, I don't think it's in the reading. Yeah, no. In the story where uh, he talks about their excessive hairiness, their ungodly rights and usages, which they were addicted. <laughs> I like that they're like addicted to religion. It's so weird. <laughs> they're outlaws and they're cannibals. Like they go and they raid these little towns outside of Camorium. Far outside of Camorium. So Camorium's like, not our problem. But yeah, they they rape and uh, rob and... Eat. eat people. Basically, they're reverse. Oh, and the Vormis are... He calls them a somewhat aboriginal race. Uh, he goes into more description of them later on in the Seven Geese... Geeses? There's like a quote where he says, Also, much was said regarding the genesis of the Vormis, who were popularly believed to be the offspring of women and certain atrocious creatures that had come forth in primal days from a tenebrous cave world in the bowels of Vormendreth. So oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> so does that mean that every single one of the Vormis is, you know, the offspring of people in something horrible? I or, guess so. Because Maybe makes, they've inbred amongst themselves too? Oh, maybe, yeah. Because now you can come out with some people that are basically like human and some, some things that are totally still. I have a question that relates to putting Hyperborea in relation to Hyborea. So mm -hmm. it says yeah. that the Vormis live in these Iglophian mountains. But if you Google the term Iglophian mountain, it actually it takes you to websites that are saying it's part of, of Robert E. Howard's conception of Hyperborea and Hyborea. But I don't know if that comes from Robert E. Howard himself or if that's just something that's been inserted into it or, or what the situation is. It could be that I know that they, they, they like to trade stuff, so. It could be. I, I really don't know. There's your homework assignment, listeners. <laughs> Iglophian Mountains, what's the deal? Find out what we're doing wrong. Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he goes into a bit of Nagathan's heritage, right? Yes, which yeah. is possibly Sethogwan, maybe. Yeah. See, so that's what I'm like. Is it that the Vormis themselves are already bred from like humans and these horrible things, and then one of them bred with Sethogwa? So like, Nagathan is even or more? or maybe maybe it's maybe it's that he's actually like a pure Vormis, and all the others are like strange half-breeds. Oh, like oh. half-breeds. Maybe I mean, it could be other way, right? Yeah. Well, he also mentions shortly after talking about how Nigathan, it's rumored that he's the direct spawn of Sethagua, but that um, when Sethagua came down, he brought with him swart protean spawn, which are like <laughs> that, that thing from um, Satampra Zero. So maybe they're also breeding and... Mm -hmm. <laughs> or it could be it could be one of those things from door to Saturn too. I mean, who knows? Yeah, but we're yeah, but right because according to the mythology in that that story, Sathagwa is himself from right. Saturn, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh -huh. yeah. I do just love how like it, there's like no sex at all in Lovecraft's fiction. If there's any, it's like 
breeding for the sake of mating. Yeah. And in Clark Ashton Smith's, like, all the sex just makes you go, oh. <laughs> yeah. Because oh. <laughs> it's so hot. <laughs> yes, yes, that is that is why, Phil. Demis, Demis, Demis. So there's this crazy bandit, right? And he's yeah. doing horrible things. He's a noxious marauder, mm-hmm. as they say in the story. Um, but then... Wait, wait, he oversteps, right? He does something that they're finally like, we have to catch this guy? or is it Yeah, he-, he starts raiding uh, towns closer to Camorium, suburbs of Camorium. Yeah. Once he starts raiding the closer towns, the Camorium guard or whatever, decide that they need to catch this guy. So they they send troops out and they set up traps and they eventually catch him. And they catch him in a weird way, though. They catch him in a way that seems too easy in some sense. Like, they yeah. catch him in broad daylight, and he's by himself. He's alone. Um, yeah, he's totally alone. He pulls, like, the trick that is such a fan of screenwriters these days, where the villain intentionally gets caught. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh-huh. <laughs> Like, he's like Heath Ledger's Joker, or, like, uh, Loki <laughs> in the Avengers or something, where he's just like, oh, you got me, wink, wink. <laughs> and uh, they, they drag him into Camorium. From hearing the hideous rumors and legends whose nature I have already outlined, I was prepared for something out of the ordinary in the way of criminal personality. But even at first sight, when I watched him as he was born to prison through a moiling crowd, Nygothan Zom surpassed the most sinister and disagreeable anticipations. He was naked to the waist and wore the fulvous hide of some long-haired animal which hung in filthy tatters to his knees. Such details, however, contributed little to those elements in his appearance which revolted and shocked me. His limbs, his body, his lineaments were outwardly formed like those of aboriginal man, and one might even have allowed for his utter hairlessness, in which there was a remote and blasphemously caricatural suggestion of a shaven priest and even the broad, formless mottling of his skin like that of a huge boa might somehow have been glossed over as a rather extravagant peculiarity of pigmentation. It was something else. It was the unctuous, verminous ease, the undulant litheness and fluidity of his every movement, seeming to hint at an inner structure and vertebration that were less than human, or one might have almost said, a sub-ophidian lack of all bony framework, which made me view the captive and also my incumbent task with an unparallelable distaste. He seemed to slither rather than walk, and the very fashion of his jointure, the placing of knees, hips, elbows, and shoulders appeared arbitrary and facetious. One felt that the outward semblance of humanity was a mere concession to anatomical convention and that his corporeal formation might easily have assumed, and might still assume at any instant, the unheard-of outlines and concept-defying dimensions that prevail in transgalactic worlds. Indeed, I could now believe the outrageous tales concerning his ancestry, and with equal horror and curiosity, I wondered what the stroke of justice would reveal, and what noisome, mephitic ichor would befoul the impartial sword in lieu of honest blood.
Ew. <laughs> did you did you guys kind of get the feeling that this was almost like Clark Ashton Smith's Dunwich Horror? Yes. Yeah, I um I wrote that note later on in my in my notes. Once things start to really go down, it does feel a lot like Dunwich Horror. Yeah, but even like even almost this part, like you can kind of tell in like the early part of Dunwich Horror that there's something not right with Wilbur Watley, and yeah. you can kind of tell it here with uh, how are we saying it again? <laughs> Nigathan. Nigathan. Yeah, Nigathan does not seem right at all. <laughs> Yeah, you almost wonder what he's hiding under his... He's got that skin that yeah. hangs to his knees, thank goodness, yeah. but you wonder what he's hiding under there. He's, it's just, this is, like, I don't know if uh, Ruth told you, but when I, like, first we were talking about this, this is my favorite Clark Ashton Smith story ever. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah it's ever. a really good any one. settings. And it's like, it is like Dunwich Horror, but like you guys always talk about with that escalation. Yes. Yeah. Where it's like, this is bad enough, but then it just... <laughs> right. It, by the end, I was just like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It gets it gets bananas up in, yeah, in Camorium. So they catch him, and they very quickly sentence him to death. So, of course, yeah. Athamaeus gets the call to perform his duties. I didn't pick this first execution scene as a reading, but I did think that it's pretty awesome. There's a couple of great moments in it. There's this, like, running thing with Athamaeus where he seems to have an intimate knowledge of anatomy, basically because he's the next practitioner, which I just think is hilarious. So he has this bit where he talks about how necks differ in the sensation which they afford to one's hand beneath the penetrating blade, which I just think is, like, he's cut so many heads off, he knows, like... Like what you had for breakfast that morning, depending on how the sword goes through your neck. Uh, well, that's the that's the funny thing about Camorium is that they have like a full time executioner on staff. Literally, his work day is come in in the morning and chop heads until night. <laughs> like, is the only punishment in Camorium decapitation? Like, whatever you do, you get no, decapitated. No, 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 no. I don't think so because there's this whole there's this whole thing about like they seem to be a very. Um, uh, not necessarily litigious people, but they have judges. Like there seems to be a oh, yeah. process of law, right? So I don't, I don't think they're taking ever. They're probably cutting off hands and other things too. Yeah, oh, you know, okay. toes, fingers, noses. <laughs> it's not just I'm, heads here. I'm imagining like an old black and white cartoon with a conveyor belt and just <laughs> right. this guy like yeah. chopping heads and that like da 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 na 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 like that song <laughs> playing and just chopping heads off or like blazing saddles. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't possibly squeeze him in. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Athamaeus is making me feel like. Like this is just, he's just cutting necks all day. But usually it's 14 days between trial and decapitation. I think that we that you that we get throughout the course of the story a pretty clear picture of who Athamaeus is as a person, and I just think he's uh, particular and observant, and in some sense obsessed with correctness. Right? Yes. Oh, because, yeah. He like, loves the bureaucracy of Camorra. Well, and, it, and it's the whole reason he's writing the story, right? He's, mm-hmm. He says that up front, he's tired of the nonsense. like, And he's going to tell you how it actually yeah. happened because he's sick of hearing this this mumbo-jumbo that people are spewing. Yeah. Meanwhile, his story is full of mumbo-jumbo, too. But <laughs> it's the mumbo-jumbo that actually happened. <laughs> he does keep mentioning how he has, like, an intuition. And throughout the story, he keeps having bad dreams in mm-hmm. between each... Uh, in between each escalation of uh, Nygathans, <laughs> whatever. I mean, it, this is his first bad dream, right? So the, the head comes off, right? Yeah. And everybody, like, sort of claps. And then hey. is like, okay, that's okay. His head came off. Everything's fine. And they take and they bury the body. And this is 
Mike, where you said where they buried in a fashion similar to the Ottoman Empire, right? Well, that, yeah, that was how they actually buried the executioners. Oh, how they buried the executioners. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That might um, play into the end of the story. <laughs> so then he goes home and he has some foam wine and some jango, jangua beans, which I just pulled out because, uh, I, as I just noted them, because they're totally, I think, entirely made up. And I just mm-hmm. like the idea of Clark Ashton Smith, like, thinking to himself, they don't just eat... <laughs> Black beans and lentils. Yeah, it's, it's they jungle beans. beans and they drink foam wine. Um, <laughs> so fantastic with a pH. <laughs> what will I come up with next? I wonder. <laughs> and he has one of these nightmares that Tim was talking about, where he he envisions the doom of the city or something. Or it's not the doom of the city necessarily. It's just like a. Well, yeah, it's a really cool. I, it was cool enough to note it in my notes. It's he he kind of sums it up as a treadmill bafflement, where he just has a dream of repetition and not being able to get things done, which kind of speaks to what we were talking about just before about how he loves like process. Like mm-hmm. he likes that there's something that happens, something else that happens, and then the ending. But his dream is of. You know, just not being able to get things done, and it's really upsetting to him. Uh huh. <laughs> so then he gets up, blames it on the beans, uh, like you do. Right. <laughs> like got up, mm, too many wine, too much beans. It's like I see on Twitter every morning. You know, we were gonna try to talk about farts at some point, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this might be the spot. <laughs> oh yeah, wait a minute. I thought I thought you had. Oh no, no, you have notes about Hitler. I feel like it's it's. A profound historical justice that knows about farts and knows about Hitler would be the same, <laughs> the same thing. Yeah. He goes back to work the next day, mm-hmm. um, and just like usual, he puts on his blood purple robes and stands <laughs> in the temple square and starts beheading criminals. I had not gone far when I heard an unconscionable roar that was spreading swiftly from street to street, from alley to alley throughout Camorium. I distinguished a myriad cries of rage, horror, fear, and lamentation that were seemingly caught up and repeated by everyone who chanced to be abroad at that hour, meeting some of the citizenry who were plainly in the state of the most excessive agitation and were still continuing their outcries. I inquired the reason of this clamor, and thereupon I learned from them that Nagathin Zom, whose illicit career was presumably at an end, had now reappeared and had signalized the unholy miracle of his return by the commission of a most appalling act on the main avenue before the very eyes of early passers. He had seized the respectable seller of Dijangua beans and had proceeded instantly to devour his victim alive, without heeding the blows, bricks, arrows, javelins, cobblestones, and curses that were rained upon him by the gathering throng and by the police. It was only when he had satisfied his atrocious appetite that he suffered the police to lead him away, leaving little more than the bones and raiment of the Jonga cellar to mark the spot of this outrageous happening. Since the case was without legal parallel, Nagathan Zom had been thrown once more into the Obliette below the city dungeons to await the will of Laquemethros and the eight judges. He's back! It's horrifying. It's not even like vampire back. He no. just ate a dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. It reminds me of uh, Lovecraft's description of how uh, Abdul Alhazred gets killed, like devoured by a monster in the middle of the marketplace. Oh, oh yeah. Maybe Abdul Alhazred was a jungle bean seller. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but how 
<laughs> How is he? Him? I guess without yeah. a head. Did he Except, like? Well, I'm, we're assuming he has his head. Yeah, now. I think his yeah. head. Did he just like, like unhinge his jaw? Yeah, like does his jaw just, or did he just like start like? Uh, it's like even more upsetting to me to think of him just like grabbing the guy's arm and just starting to dig in right. and like <laughs> not stopping no matter what, and like that poor bean seller just being like oh my god this guy's eating my arm and like not being able to do <laughs> oh. anything about it until he's gone oh. this is kind of like our last monster though who you know he ate him alive yeah that's true oh, two in a row in yeah yeah and again they they don't just like kill him or take him to the executioner maybe no there's no legal precedent for this nope so they're yeah. gonna make one this is yeah. This is I noted the moment when I actually fell in love with the story because it's yeah. not just that they rearrest him. It's like not just uncomfortable that he ate somebody. It's uncomfortable <laughs> that that there really is no precedent for this. So they have right. to like these rewrite the laws. To, yeah, they have to rewrite laws and they have to call for him to be rejudged and re-executed, <laughs> which I just think is like the bureaucracy and the weird like. Okay, well now we have to. Because according to the law, you can't be executed twice because next execution right. you're dead. So now we have to like come up with this whole. I just imagine to be reams and reams and reams of parchment as they're like yep. trying to. <laughs> come I up with imagine these statues. that this is like Clark Ashton Smith's like a script for Law and Order. <laughs> like after he eats that bean seller, you know he like they they handcuff him and he looks at the camera and he goes dong dong. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if Law and Order were like this story, I would love that show so much. Law and Order, Camorium. <laughs> That's the best idea I've ever heard. And maybe the good episodes would end with Avameus chopping off somebody's head. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's every episode. Every episode at the end. Because that's the only punishment. And with this one, you're like, wait, he did it, like, he chopped his head off, like, 15 minutes into the show. What are they gonna do for (laughs) a show, guys? And then... Is it Igonwood? I guess so. Right. However you want to say it, dude. I say Igonwood. <laughs> say it again.